0: Jump.
1: Unstable, corrupt and impoverished, is this the future for Afghanistan? Britain's ambassador to Kabul tells us his concerns. Was the budget good news for the military?
2: I think the real significance is he didn't hit us for something else because at the moment I think in the military we've been hit again and again and I think we've been hit too hard.
1: And another South American country joins the debate over the Falklands' sovereignty. Is Afghanistan going to be ready to handle its own security after 2014? The terms and conditions under which foreign troops will remain there once combat forces leave are still not agreed. The outgoing British ambassador to Kabul, Sir William Patey, has warned that when the time comes, Afghanistan will remain an impoverished and unstable state which could yet descend into chaos. Sir William joins us now from the British Embassy in Kabul, and our defence analyst, analyst Christopher Lee is with me in the studio. Hello to both of you. Uh, Sir William, thanks for your time today. What are your main concerns for the future of Afghanistan?
3: Well, I'm not, I think you've uh, you rather sort of paraphrased what I said. I was pointing out I'm actually quite optimistic about the future of Afghanistan, but I was trying in, in previous interviews to give the idea that we mustn't have uh, overinflated expectations. So uh, when our uh, troops, combat troops, pull out in 2014, it's important that we don't have expectations that somehow Afghanistan is going to be a model state. Uh, So I need to put my remarks in context. Uh, It will still be unstable. It will still be a poor country. Uh, But it will be less unstable than it was when we arrived. It will be less poor than when we arrived. And it will be on a path to progress. But let us not create uh, inflated expectations which which we can never meet.
1: So what do you think about the exit timetable for foreign troops?
3: I think it's absolutely right that we put a, uh, we put a timetable of this. This has galvanised the Afghans themselves to, uh, to build up their armed forces. They've got a, 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 a date certain at which they have to take over responsibility. I think it's added to alliance cohesion. Some of the alliance were beginning, uh, were beginning to think that this was a never-ending uh, task with no time limit. So I think it's been very important, and I think uh, it, it's, it wasn't an arbitrary timetable. It was a timetable that we, uh, given the added resources we were putting into this, that was feasible. And I think uh, uh, that has proved to be correct. We are on course to to uh, achieve what we hope to achieve by 2014: an Afghan force capable of taking over for our brave boys and girls, uh, and capable of maintaining security. And we can get out with honour, uh, but also. It's not a withdrawal. We have to remember that we should, we must remain engaged in Afghanistan, continuing to support them financially and with training and other and other support. So it's an evolution in our um, evolution in our uh, in our role, where our brave boys and girls don't have to do the fighting anymore, but there's still a job to be done.
1: Uh, Christopher Lee, how do you think the Afghan security forces will cope once the combat troops withdraw, the ISAF troops?
4: It, it relies on so many issues one is how well they're structured and therefore the continuous training of them uh, how well that middle management of uh, of the afghan forces you know company commander level how well that proceeds and you know with the establishment of a sort of sandhurst organisation in in kabul that becomes very important but it's also uh, something which Um, You say, right, by 2014, when we go, we hope that we can leave in place this Afghan forces in in good enough condition to run the country or the security of the country. But what about 2014 plus 5, plus 10, plus 15? This is the longer term. Um, And I I know full well that, I mean, from listening to evidence that Chilcot, when uh, Sir William was running the, I think, was it the Middle East desk in the beginning of the decade? in 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 the foreign office people had to think ahead but circumstances change so much so quickly uh and are surprising changes that you have to rethink all these uh, the, these assessments and that's what concerns me i think a lot of other people that what happens after 2014 not just the headlines when we leave
1: so, so william what are your concerns about the funding of the afghan security forces because you've talked about that recently haven't you
3: Yes, well, I have concerns that you know, we live in a time of austerity when people are trying to make changey, uh, change, save money, uh, and my concern is that once our troops are out, uh, and that's not just Britain, that's the international community, that some of the support for Afghanistan might uh, might uh, waver, uh, and we might uh, not maintain the the, the cost. But uh, if I could just comment on the, on the last comment, I mean, I think. I agree that there are lots of uncertainties going forward and things change over decades, but we mustn't let that lead to paralysis. Uh, you know, just because we don't know for certain what uh, 2025 and 2020 is going to bring, we should not do what we're doing now. And I think some of those issues, uh, such as addressing the uh, uh, the, the middle management, the, uh, the, the, the ability of the Afghans to sustain a force, it's, it's one thing to put a force in the field, it's another thing to sustain it. We have to address... These issues And funding is going to be a, a critical part of that because uh, we know that the sort of force the Afghans will need in terms of maintaining security will be unaffordable to the Afghans in 2015. And without international support, uh, you'll have an unpaid army. And, uh, and uh, that is not an area of uncertainty. We know exactly what happens when you have an unpaid army.
1: How do we avoid the kind of mistakes that were made in Iraq? Because you are an ambassador to Iraq as well, weren't you?
3: I was, yes. Well, you know, you, you learn your lessons, but you're often you're destined to make some of the same mistakes. And we've, uh, uh, you know, we've fears about mistakes.
1: the kind of mistakes yeah. that might be repeated.
3: Well, we've already repeated some mistakes. I mean, basically, in the in the desire to get things done quickly, you don't necessarily re- lay the foundations. Take the time to lay the foundations at an earlier stage, and I think we're suffering from that here too. That uh, in the earlier years when we could have laid firmer foundations. Uh, we'd have been much further down the road on some of the issues the other commentator t- talked about. So, uh, uh, but I think we, in the last three years, uh, we've one, learnt one of the lessons is that you can't just uh, you, you can't just um, uh, go invade a country, turn over an unpleasant regime, and then expect everything to right itself. I,
1: you indeed, have to
3: remain engaged, and you have to remain remain focused.
1: And, uh, indeed, uh, and, and corruption think, and corruption remains a major issue in Afghanistan, doesn't it?
3: A big worry. Uh, it's a big worry. Uh, it's a big worry. It's something endemic, I think, in this country. I mean, the, the, a lot of Afghans take a lot of corruption for granted and they're rather uh, philosophical about it. Uh, I think we have to focus on it. I think the Afghans themselves have to focus on it because uh, I don't think we're going to make... Uh, uh, we, we, we're going to eliminate corruption, but we do have to make some progress and we have to make sure it's not of a sufficient level that would undermine the viability of the state. And we have made some progress on that, but
1: I think there is, uh,
3: there is still some way to go.
1: Christopher, uh, your view on corruption and the viability of the state?
4: Well, um, first on corruption, there's a, there's a report this morning which suggests that the overseas aid department, DFID, uh, doesn't know and cannot trace where the money the United Kingdom is being put in And there's a suggestion into Afghanistan, the suggestion that, you know, money sort of disappears. Somebody was making a report the other day about the the millions of dollars, maybe billions of dollars that actually go out in banknotes. Uh, From Kabul uh, to the Middle East, but it's this bigger idea at the moment There's a meeting for example next week in the State Department and one one of the things on the agenda uh, Is is summarized by somebody this morning who was saying the State Department has got this view now is that you never again Send an army to the graveyard of empires which they they're referring to uh, to uh, to Afghanistan and they're quoting in the agenda Uh, Bob Gates, Robert Gates, the former uh, Pentagon uh, Defense Secretary, and he's saying that any future, I'm quoting here, any future defense secretary who advises the president to send a big land army into Asia, the Middle East, or Africa should have his head examined. Now, he was saying that last year, and this is just going to emerge in this, this debate. So I think that sort of sums up the difficulties that people, if you like, from the start say, the Foreign Office Middle East Department, which uh, Sir William was running, to be an ambassador, to be the local man reporting. Man. Those are the sort of difficulties that you just
1: simply cannot avoid. Uh, Sir so, so William, what, what are your hopes and your fears for the future of Afghanistan?
3: Well, my hopes is that you know we will we will succeed in uh, in getting Afghanistan onto a path to greater stability and greater progress, and uh, once again, it will never be a country from which uh, terrorists can plan and execute uh, terrorist attacks against Britain or any other country. That's uh, that's our uh, that's our hope. Uh, my fears are that you know, as Chris says, this is a this is a very difficult task. This is a country that's had decades of war. Uh, it starts from a very low base of poverty and illiteracy, so it's not easy. Uh, but uh, I think we've made uh, considerable progress. And if you see if you see what our troops have done in Helmand in terms of uh, uh, buying the time for the Afghans to come in and replace them and create the conditions for better governance, uh, you 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 can. You, that's why I'm optimistic. I mean, I've been here for two years. I've seen what Hellman was like when I arrived. I see what it's like as I leave. So I see what can be done in a short period of time. I'm also, as Chris said, you know, I've been around the Middle East a long time, uh, and I'm realistic about what you can achieve in a couple of years. But I think what most commentators are not living here on a daily basis don't see are the the foundations that have been laid, the green shoots uh, that are beginning to flourish, the six million kids at school the improving tax system, uh, the better levels of administration, still well short of what we take for granted in the United Kingdom. But that's not what we can ever hope to achieve by 2014. We can't even hope to achieve it by 2025. But if we get the Afghans on a path to progress and stability, we will have done our job here and our, uh, our, our troops can leave with our head held high, knowing that they have made a difference and the sacrifices that they've made have not been in vain.
4: Christopher? It's interesting that there are 358 or whatever it is, uh, districts in, in Afghanistan. The three that the British have influence over in Helmand, I think people are going to start to see, are these going to be role models for the other 300, the other 350? And I think that's, that's really important for people to understand. That is the plus side of what's going on.
1: Uh, Sir so, so William, um, people may in the UK in these times of austerity question w- what you see as important, which is the continuing investment in Afghanistan post-combat troop withdrawal. Um, how do you think it will go down in the UK and, and what will the argument be going forward?
3: Well, my argument will be we've already made the ma- major part of the investment. Uh, it, the, the billions that we've committed to the deployment of our troops here uh, and in the sacrifices that we, that uh, young men and women have Already made, so we have already paid the highest price—the the investment. Uh, the, what we're being asked to—what we're being asked to pay beyond 2015—is—is is minuscule by comparison. We are talking about hundreds of millions instead of tens of billions. So all I would say is um, the amount of money that we, the UK alone, will need to contribute. Remember, this is part of an international uh, coalition. Um, is very small compared with the investment you've already sunk. And I do know, some of your listeners might be poker players. In fact, I know they're poker players. <laughs> uh, and there is such a thing about, uh, you know, the, 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 you calculate the level of the, the, the future investment you're going to put in, the future bet you're going to put in against the size of the pot. Well, you know, uh, I like a game of poker and uh, I certainly wouldn't want that pot to go to waste for the sake of, uh, of 100 million.
1: And on that note, we'll leave it. Sir William Patey, British Ambassador to Kabul, thank you very much for your time today.
3: Sit rep with Kerry.
1: Still to come, the Duke of Cambridge is back home after his short tour of the Falklands, but the sabre rattling continues, and we'll hear about the Duke of Edinburgh's interest in the left field and eccentric and what this means for the military. The FES Sit Rep. Yesterday's budget saw George Osborne announce a series of tax cuts which he claims will benefit millions. The Chancellor's slashed the top rate from 50p to 45p next year and the tax-free allowance is increasing to just over £9,000 from next April. For the military, he announced a commitment to improve accommodation as well as changes to other welfare benefits. BFBS reporter Jeff Meads joins us in the studio. Hi Jeff. Uh, what did George Osborne say about defence and the forces in his speech? What well,
0: was interesting there were four specific references and he brought them out very early in his hour-long speech yesterday. Um, first of all, he told us that the drawdown from Afghanistan uh, would result in a saving on expected spending there of £2.4 billion. So that's money in credit. And it's interesting, I mean, listening to the poker-playing ambassador to <laughs> Kabul um, image, talking about the, the money. I mean, we will have spent, according to the Treasury figures, 25 0.2 billion pounds in Afghanistan, three times what Iraq cost, and currently operations there running at about 12 million pounds a day, 500,000 pounds for every hour. So there's a saving to be made there. Where where is that money going to be uh, reinvested? As the Chancellor put it, 100 million pounds, as you mentioned in housing, much needed in the dilapidated state of the Defence Housing uh, estate. That will pay for 650 homes to be refurbished, 25 new family houses will be built, and there will be 600 uh, en-suite bedrooms for single living accommodation. What we don't know, Kate, is how this squares with last year's announcement of a three-year pause in housing upgrades to, to raise money, um, mm. to save money rather. So there's a bit of a, a lack of clarity there. Second bit of good news, council tax rebate. Those deployed overseas will now qualify for their full council tax rebate for every day uh, they're they're abroad. So they'll get that retrospectively, and that's going to cost about £3 million. And um, it's reckoned that something like uh, 9,500 service families will benefit from that. And the final uh, bit of good news for the force is £2 million is being spent doubling the welfare grant. This is the grant principally um, for families of those serving in Afghanistan. It's £4.40 per day from next month, uh, per, in, uh, per week, per individual. Um, sounds generous, it's been doubled, but then it hasn't gone up since 2008, so it was probably high time uh, that went up. So some good news not a huge amount of spend but in the right direction at
1: least. And you were out and about in Westminster yesterday did you get any reaction from military people?
0: It was very much that uh, the, the relief that some of the fears that they had that uh, defence might be clobbered in the budget had not been realised um, one of those I spoke to was Lord West you remember former first Sea Lord then he was a security minister in the last Labour government now he'd written an open letter uh, to the Chancellor saying uh, can you please drop this uh, cap, the 1% cap uh, on uh, on service uh, pay rises, uh, that didn't happen, he didn't get that, he was disappointed in that, but nonetheless, he seemed to be reasonably pleased.
2: They're all a nice nod, yes, but nothing hugely significant, but I think the real significance is he didn't hit us for something else, because at the moment, I think in the military, we've been hit again and again, and I think we've been hit too hard.
0: Now, another former senior officer I spoke to out on uh, Abbey and Green across from Parliament yesterday, Major General John Moore Bick. He's General Secretary of the Forces Pension Society. Uh, They were worried because pensions had been hit in the last budget. Uh, They feared something similar might happen uh, this time, but actually, again, not bad news.
5: This is as good as it gets, considering the circumstances we find ourselves in, and we welcome the fact that there was no more adjustment and restriction to the lifetime allowance and the annual allowance.
0: And oh, just finally, Kate, um, Major uh, John Morbick said that uh, his final advice would be to the military, who tend to be uh, generally uh, more smokers than in the average population, uh, give up cigarettes and put the money in, put the money into a pension plan.
1: <laughs> oh, well, if, that, if that's not an incentive, what is? Well, let's get into the nitty-gritty a bit more on all of this. How will forces families be affected by the budget? Earlier I spoke to Danny Cox, head of advice at financial service providers Hargreaves Lansdowne, and I asked him what the budget will mean for someone at the bottom of the forces pay scale, say a Royal Navy rating or an army private with a salary of just over £17,000.
5: Well, I think with, as with any budget, there are sort of winners and losers in this, and, and, and the lower paid are certainly winners to a degree. Um, the amount of money that you can earn before you start to pay tax is known as the personal allowance. And this is already scheduled to increase to £8,105 in the new tax year from April. But that's now going to jump up further uh, in, in, from 2013 to £9,205, which is going to mean uh, uh, less tax of around about £225 for somebody earning on, uh, for someone on a salary of around about £17,000. So that's a very positive move. Unfortunately, the, the government is in a position whereby whatever it gives you with one hand, it has to take away with the other. Um, and what we are seeing is a continuation of the fuel escalator, so there's another 3p on the litre of, of petrol. We're seeing cigarettes going up by an average of 37 pence a packet, and we're also seeing an above-inflation rise on, on alcohol such as beer and wine so um, those who don't drink and don't smoke will see this as a very positive budget those people who drink and smoke they're going to give with one hand and and they're going to lose it with the other I'm afraid
1: and what will it mean for those with families
5: and those with families, well, I, th- I think the important thing here is, is that the child benefit um, has been pushed back so that so the people who um, were, child benefit was going to be taken away for those who were earning £42,475, but now it's being pushed back so people won't start to lose child benefit until their income is £50,000 and above. In fact, they'll keep some of their child benefit until they get to around about £60,000 income. So somebody with two, two children who's, who's, who's earning less than £50,000 will return retain their, uh, their child benefit of around about £1,700 pounds a year.
1: And finally, uh, what about those at the top end of the pay scale, those earning £60,000 or more?
5: Well those earning £60,000 or more um, with, with children they'll lose their, their, their child benefit which is as I say for two children a loss of around about £1,700 a year. Um, they're also going to pay slightly more higher rates of tax. This is The, the, the allowances and bans have been shifted around so what they gain from their personal allowance, the additional personal allowance is going to be taken away by a reduction in the amount of basic rate tax bans so uh, they're, they're broadly going to be uh, as well off as they were before. So it's fairly neutral. It's only once you start to get over 100,000 and 150,000 that people will be starting to pay much more tax. But what we have seen actually, which I hadn't mentioned, is the, is the council tax relief for those on, empl- uh, uh, on deployment. Um, that's now been changed. So there's going to be 100% uh, council tax relief for those people on deployment. So, for example, somebody living in a Band D home, um, if they're deployed for, say, a 12-month period, that would be a saving of around about £1,600, pounds, depending on where you lived.
1: That was Danny Cox from Hargreaves Landstand speaking to me earlier. Christopher Lee, what did you make of the budget from a defence point of view?
4: OK, well, the, the accommodation thing is really a response to get in before they report on the House of Commons Defence Committee, which are looking at the moment at the, at the anomalies, as they politely call it, in, in, a, in accommodation. So it's a bit of a spoiler. Well, it's a spoiler, but it's happening. So, you know, the House of Commons Defence Committee, yet again, has done its job. The other thing is, watch for next week uh, when we say I heard a couple of people there saying, you know, it's as good as it gets, etc. Well, wait till next week. We're going to get some more hits next week. I think, when the Defence Secretary reports to Parliament on on the on the annual defence spending. Um, the other thing is that the to be reported is that the Chancellor is going to publish, and everybody as a taxpayer will get a list of uh, of which department spends what, and there'll be a sort of league table. Every household will be able to see uh, where defense spending comes in this. And there might be some grumblings from that because then fast forward to 2014, which is the crucial thing. If this is as good as it gets, wait till 2014. And that's the time when troops out of Afghanistan, people who will get a little list like this, say, why are we spending this money on defense? That's mm. what the defence ministry is going to have to fight.
1: Uh, and, Jeff, more to come on defence spending later this spring as well.
0: Indeed. Christopher, you heard it here first. I've just spoken to the MOD. Uh, that announcement on uh, defence spending and the defence budget has now been pushed back the other side of the Easter recess. Uh, it was due to happen I uh, it's not uh, gonna gonna be week.
4: A, I wonder it's not going to be a written answer on a Friday.
0: <laughs> no, it'll come <laughs> out sometime after they've all returned from Easter. And why has it been delayed? Well, I think it's all about joint strike fighter. Um, Philip Hammond has said today, David Cameron, if you want to get within this budget, uh, then we ha- we have to drop the plan to carry mm. conventional aircraft on our new carriers. Well, the Prime to... Minister doesn't believe that at the moment. He's Prime... yet to be convinced.
4: He doesn't. Plenty
1: wa- of work in progress there. Then, he thank doesn't... you, Jeff. B F B S. So Flight Lieutenant Wales has returned to Britain from the Falkland Islands where he was based for 6 weeks as a military helicopter pilot. But his return has done little to quell the tensions over Argentina's claim on the islands. This week a visit by a Royal Navy frigate to Peru has been cancelled by the hosts in a display of solidarity with its fellow South American nation. HMS Montrose was due to visit later this week but the Peruvian government has withdrawn its welcome for the ship. Richard Ralph is a former governor of the Falkland Islands and is also a former British ambassador to Peru and he joins us now. Richard, thanks for your time today. Um, first of all, what do you make of Peru's decision to cancel HMS Montrose's visit?
2: Well, I think it's uh, uh, deplorable. Um, it seems to have been made in a great uh, hurry at the last minute, presumably in response to um, very uh, sudden uh, Argentine lobbying. And um, I think it's uh, the best that can be said about it is it's a misjudgment and the and, and extremely discourteous um, considering that you know the United Kingdom is a good friend of Peru, Peru doesn't need to get involved uh, in this dispute. Um, but I think it's quite significant, too, that the uh, cancellation of the visit has attracted a great deal of criticism from um, across the political spectrum in, in Peru itself, especially as reflected in the media there.
1: It, do, it certainly does seem like it was a, a last-minute decision by Peru because the Foreign Office Minister, Jeremy Brown, had no idea or was told nothing of it when he visited last Friday. Precisely. So how close is the relationship between Peru and Argentina?
2: Well, they've always been um, uh, pretty close uh, culturally. Um, uh, during the 1982 conflict, as you may recall, um, uh, there was uh, the talk of Peru uh, supplying um, Argentina with some of its own assets to make up for uh, losses of the, uh, the Argentine ones. Um, and Peru got very much involved in trying to mediate in 1982, unsuccessfully as it happens, um, I mean, they are, you know, they are close, they like each other, um, but this is absurd. This is the first time that um, Peru has sort of kowtowed to Argentina in, in this sort of way and got got so actively involved.
1: What sort of pressure will Argen- Argentina be putting on all the Union of South American Nation countries? Do they well, hold uh, a lot of sway?
2: Yes, a lot. Of, well, uh, th- there's nothing new about this. Um, they've been um, actively stimulating the production of, sort of uh, declarations by the, in, the various um, South American uh, organizations, um, UNASUR, MERCOSUR, and so on, uh, upholding the uh, and expressing support for the Argentine position on, on the Falklands. Um, as I said, absolutely nothing new about that. What seems to be, what is, is clear now is that Argentina is much more actively um, getting at uh, its um, uh, fellow Ar- uh, South American countries, uh, countries and governments to try and get them to um, uh, make life difficult for us. So we saw, you know, they, they managed to uh, uh, provoke Brazil and Uruguay to agree not to accept Falkland-flagged ships, um, which actually is not too serious, because as long as the ships have red ensigns, they're still welcome in, those, in the, the ports of those mm. countries. Um, they've uh, said that they're going to, you know, get at companies which are involved in oil exploration around the Falklands, and so on. So I, you know, they're raising the stakes. They're, they are increasing the pressure. Um, you know, I expect we can see more. We're going to we're going to see more of this, unfortunately.
1: Christopher, aside from the British government making it clear that it's up to the Falkland Islanders to decide their own sovereignty, why does Britain actually need to keep hold of these territories?
4: Because it said it would. And that's the first thing. It, it's but the it British worked. Antarctic ser- ter- yes. Survey,
1: for example, operates yes. it, from it, there as it, a port.
4: Yeah, you could, it, it, it is access, for example, to Antarctica. But by the way, just clear up one point. The reason that uh, Jeremy Brown was not told about the Peruvian decision is, one, it's not a Peruvian decision, or indirectly it is. It was because the decision was taken in a meeting in Peru of the 12 foreign ministers in the South American Union. And that was a collective decision, or it may have been forced on. And the Peruvians had to actually say it was backed up for the meeting. That was on Monday. It was backed up where a meeting that was taking place in Chile on Tuesday at the economic ministers. So it's a ganging yeah. up, if you like.
1: Uh, this ganging up, um, what effect is it having on Falkland Islands? I mean, I saw a report this week that the price of life is going up. An apple, one pound thirty-nine. Is it having much of an effect?
4: Well, everybody that I talk to, uh, that's either there, coming back, or whatever, they say no. No, I mean, they're pretty sort of pretty cool about the whole damn thing. They don't have to get screwed up about it at the moment. They point about the politics of South America and they point out that once this year, this summer perhaps, is gone, um, then perhaps we'll be back to normal and just the occasional sniping. And
1: and Richard Ralph, um, lots of hostile talk from Argentina in the past few years. Is is it different this time, do you think?
2: Well, it's uh, more strident, certainly. I think that, you know, there are a number of factors uh, which explain this. One is it's coming up to the 30th anniversary. Uh, they, they took serious umbrage to the um, uh, point that you know the uh, uh, dispatch of uh, the um, heir to the throne, or eventual heir to the throne, to uh, Prince William for the six-week attachment as a helicopter pilot. Uh, they made a great fuss about the uh, sending of the of a new a new um, frigate. Uh, again, it's absolutely nothing. It simply reflects the fact that you know we we equip We send when we get new fighter aircraft, we send a new type of aircraft rather than keeping the old ones there. Um but and then they made a huge fuss about militarization of the of the south atlantic and and, and they sort of affect that we 're we 're somehow um nuclearizing the South Atlantic. These are not new themes by the way it 's just that they 're making a much bigger noise about it all at the moment and as I said, I think it reflects the fact that we 're at the thirtieth anniversary, and I Indeed. think to be honest it also reflects a certain degree of uh, frustration on the part of the Argentines that, you know, nothing they do ever seems to get us get them any closer to their stated objective, which is to get us around a table for negotiations about the future of the Falklands. All
1: right Richard Ralph former governor of the Falklands and former British ambassador to Peru thanks for your time today. Well as well as his very public duties this week with his wife Her Majesty the Queen the Duke of Edinburgh has been enjoying the more unconventional pleasures that can sometimes come with the job. I'm talking about the eccentric club and a dinner last night at which our very own Christopher Lee was present. Uh, What is this eccentric club and how does it have any influence on military life?
4: Well, uh, we were we were formed in 1781. You know, uh, I wasn't an original member, but uh, I've I been just a think member. Not. Well, <laughs> well, I hope not. I've been a member sometime. Basically, uh, we used to have at one time we used to have orphanages, we had old people's homes, and we basically uh, a bunch of sort of characters who don't necessarily think in a straight line, but make sure we can get enough money together to actually help people who have got no choice in the way they do think.
1: And I understand you were next to the Duke of Edinburgh. Yeah. What does he have to say?
4: He said that he liked the idea of being an eccentric if he knew what it was. <laughs> I was also sitting the other <laughs> side Only of the Marquis of, of Bath, who was there in a flowery shirt, you remember, with his wifelets and his long hair, long <laughs> lead, etc. And he said to me in a very loud voice in the middle of the Duke, Duke's speech, what's he talking about? And I said, I don't know. And Duke said, well, I wasn't listening either, so who knows? So (laughs) that's that's the atmosphere.
1: Well, if you were listening to this programme, thank you for doing so. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our contributors and our very own eccentric Christopher Lee. Bye-bye.